This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. Based on the books one finds on the shelves at your local chain bookstore, two of the most popular historical topics, especially with military buffs, are the Civil War and military aviation. Then what could be a more surefire hit than today's show topic, military aviation during the Civil War? The only problem, was there any? Lee surrendered at Appomattox 38 and a half years before the Wright brothers flew at Kitty Hawk. To find out what did happen in the air, and I think to be surprised by the answer, we'll talk today with Tom D. Crouch, Senior Curator of the Division of Aeronautics at the Smithsonian's National Air and Space Museum on Civil War Talk Radio. Become our friend on Facebook. Post on our wall your thoughts about our shows and network. Visit Facebook.com forward slash World Talk Radio. Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite World Talk Radio network host? How about what's new with our network? Make sure you check out the iRadio blog. A look at what's hot at World Talk Radio and beyond. Visit www.iradioblog.com today. Get the inside scoop on every channel on our network, including breaking news, featured guests, blog posts from our hosts, and much more. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter for even more inside action. Visit iradioblog.com today and stay connected listen listen the world is talking the world talk radio variety channel welcome to civil war talk radio i'm jerry prokopovich coming to you on the last friday no not quite the last friday a middle Friday in November of 2011 on a beautiful, crisp autumn afternoon here in Greenville, North Carolina, on the campus of East Carolina University, but not speaking for the university nor for the University of North Carolina system or the uh, state of North Carolina or any other enterprise, just as our guest will represent only himself with his opinions and ideas today, as is always the case here on Civil War Talk Radio. It would have been the case last week, but unfortunately our scheduled guest, Jason Phillips, uh, fell ill and lost his voice and was not able to join us for the show, so we rescheduled him for February 2012. He'll be back. Uh, the week before, uh, we started out the show trying to use the Skype technology that had revolutionized Civil War talk radio for one week, but uh, didn't quite work out properly, and we went back to the phone, and indeed we're back on the phone again today, but we will enter the, the 21st century sometime before the end of the season. We'll get that working properly. Uh, the feedback was good on it. We just couldn't get it to go. But those two minor uh, snafus were were not the big talk here in Civil War talk radio land, rather, it was the guy with the umbrella uh, here at East Carolina University two days ago. The a, a person carrying an umbrella of suspicious shape and size apparently uh, across campus was spotted by several citizens who called the uh, the police, and the campus went on lockdown for a good two and a half hours as heavily armed law enforcement combed the area. Uh, I spent those two and a half hours in a classroom with uh, 
the uh, introductory American history students. We went ahead and finished our lecture. I tried to uh, just carry on uh, uh, while we were locked in there. Might as well make some use of the instructional time. And uh, we eventually went on and uh, did the second lecture, uh, did another lecture in the same time, so they didn't have class today. They got two lectures for the price of one on Wednesday, and they were happy about that, I can tell you, uh, getting to sleep late this morning. It turned out, uh, of course, there was nobody with a gun, fortunately, anywhere near the university. It was just a guy with an umbrella. The uh, latest rumor tells me the student himself was actually, uh, who brought the umbrella, was, was locked down with everybody else on campus and finally uh, saw himself on a video being shown uh, online uh, of the, the suspect. And uh, everybody in the room looked at him. And they all began running over to him to get their picture taken with him on their, their cell phones before he was uh, taken away for a uh, police interview, we'll say. He was not charged with anything. Everything ended happily. Nobody got hurt. But it's quite a world that we live in where these things go on. It did not interfere, however, with preparation for Civil War. Talk radio. Here we are. Uh, as always, you can keep track of the show on impedimentsofwar.org. Uh, operated by Mark Gaffney. While you're there, feel free to click on a, uh, the PayPal button, and if you send $20 this way, we'll send you a copy of the book. Happy to sign the book as well. That's uh, not tax-deductible. It's not a charitable cause. You technically can't even feel good about doing it uh, because the government does not recognize that that kind of good feeling. Uh but you will know that I'll use it to buy buy a book of some sort or something useful for the show, maybe a new set of headphones to get Skype working better, something like that. So hopefully you can, can do some of that. And I'll share one more uh, brief uh, news item before we get started. Uh, yesterday I received an email from a former student who had come to ECU intending to be a law enforcement officer to chase umbrella bearers across the land, but after taking uh, the Civil War course here, he changed his major, went into history, and is uh, this December getting his teaching certificate and will become a high school social studies teacher teaching other students about the Civil War. Uh, I received a nice note from his family thanking me. I'm not sure if it's that I saved him from a life of law enforcement or if they're honestly happy that he's going into teaching, but I'll take it credit that it was the latter, and uh, it's not often we hear from our former students, but once in a while you get a get a, a bit of reinforcement like that, uh, that, that someone else has seen the light and decided to follow the historical path. Well, coming up on this show, next week is Thanksgiving, no new show. Uh, Jimmy Price will join us the following week talking about United States Colored Troops, and Wayne uh, Shia will join us the following week to talk about West Pointers in the Civil War. But today it's Civil War air power. Uh, not a topic I had initially envisioned as something that, that we would fill fill the air time, but uh, we'll find out what was in the air during the Civil War. Uh, our guest today is from uh, the Air and Space Museum, somebody who would know about this if anyone, uh, Tom D. Crouch. Uh, Tom, are you there? I'm here. Thanks, Jerry. Well, thank you for being on the show. I'm thinking you and I have met to shake hands at some museum event somewhere in the world, but I, I don't know that we've ever talked at any length. 
so welcome to the show. Well, I'm pleased to be here. Pleased to talk now. Now, uh, you working at the Smithsonian, that is the, the pinnacle of uh, public history in the United States. And uh, I teach public history here. Uh, so my first question has to be, uh, how did you get there? Well, uh, I began when I was in graduate school, uh, getting my doctorate. I was also working at the Ohio Historical Society at the State Museum and uh, sort of learned uh, the public history business, doing exhibitions especially, uh, kind of on the job that way. I, I was lucky enough uh, to do all of the uh, history exhibits for the the Ohio Historical Center when it opened uh, in its new building in the early 70s, and uh, all of the exhibits for the Neil Armstrong Museum at Wapakoneta, Ohio, which opened in 1971, and a few years later, uh, Neil Armstrong's companion in space, Mike Collins, who was the director of the Air and Space Museum at that point, picked up the phone and uh, asked if I would like to stop working for the state of Ohio and start working for the Smithsonian. And since the uh, the papers I was working with for my, uh, my doctorate, my dissertation, were in Washington anyway, and uh, the opportunity to build the new museum and all that, I jumped at it, and I've been there ever since. Well, there, there's nothing more more fun than being in on the ground floor building a new museum, uh, in, in my experience. So uh, it sounds like you made a very good decision there. I was uh, lucky. I've been involved in building four major museums, uh, the two in Ohio, the National Air and Space Museum, and uh, our annex, uh, the Stephen F. Varhazy Center at uh, Dulles Airport. And I was... Uh, at American History, running the social and cultural history half of that building for a while and doing great exhibitions in, in that Smithsonian Museum as well. Well, well that, that is uh, certainly something anyone in, in the field would aspire to, to do all those things. Uh, so you were in Ohio. Um, our We have a mutual friend in, in Larry Ties who is right. here. Um, he was a uh, listener's may not be aware, Larry was one of the founders of the National Council on Public History back in the early uh, 70s, and uh, he now is a, uh, a visiting professor here at, at East Carolina. So uh, when when I realized that the two of you knew each other, I immediately went down the hall to Larry's office and said, give me some dirt on Tom Crouch. <laughs> and, you know, he said, you're just too nice a guy. He just doesn't have anything good. Uh, but he does ask... Uh, He's a Wright Brothers scholar, as I know you are, and uh, here in North Carolina, the the first in-flight state, according to our license plates, um, uh, you folks from Dayton, from from Ohio, are convinced that, that we're all wrong in North Carolina, and uh, so he, Larry just gently asks, is it true that Ohio not only invented the airplane and flight, but also uh, balloons as well? Uh, <laughs> No, I'm afraid balloons are, were the uh, the invention of the French. We can't claim credit for that. And in terms of the invention of the airplane, there's plenty of credit to uh, to go around. The the Wright brothers, of course, were Daytonians, but uh, when they were looking around for a place to do flight testing, they needed a good steady headwind to fly into and some high dunes to jump off with their gliders. And uh, they were lucky enough to find uh, the little fishing village of. Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, and uh, 
The rest, as they say, is history. So I think both Ohio and North Carolina can uh, can claim some of the credit for the invention of the airplane. Well, that that's, uh, I think, a, a fair way to look at it, certainly. Now, you mentioned the, the balloon is invented in France, uh, the, the, the man-carrying uh, balloon, and that's... That gets us in the direction of, of, of our, our topic today, uh, aviation during the Civil War. Balloons were, tell us a little bit about the, the origin of lighter-than-air flight uh, before the Civil War. Really, um, the balloon grows out of the scientific revolution of the 17th century, That really the 16th and the 17th century. Um, it, it was during that era that that uh, the kind of people we would one day in the 19th century call scientists became interested in this odorless, colorless stuff that surrounds us, the air, and what it was and what it was composed of. Uh, in the 17th century, people like Robert Boyle and Otto von Guericke were studying the physics of the atmosphere, the relationship between temperature, pressure, and uh, that kind of thing in the atmosphere. And uh, then in the 18th century, analytical chemists uh, became interested in um, sort of breaking down the atmosphere, discovering the constituent gases that made it up. And, of course, when they did that, one of the gases to pop out was this stuff called hydrogen, the lightest element. And uh, hydrogen's about six times uh, lighter than atmospheric air. And and uh, when that happened, you can just about see light bulbs going off over heads uh, all over Europe, you know, saying, gee whiz, this stuff is so light. If I could fill some kind of a light envelope with it, maybe it would fly. And they were all aware of uh, Archimedes' law, going back to ancient Greece, you know, if you you have a body that weighs less than the amount of matter, air, that it displaces, and there's a pressure gradient in the atmosphere, then it's going to be buoyant. It's going to float. And here was a way to make uh, something float inside the atmosphere. Uh, Really, the first balloons were all hot air balloons rather than gas balloons. As early as 1709, um, a Brazilian priest who was living... In Portugal, uh, was flying very small balloons in the Portuguese court. But it's really not until, uh, France in 1783 when the Montgolfier brothers, Jacques and Etienne Montgolfier, um, build, uh, really their first little balloon and unveil it in public in June 1783. And then the rest of that year, 1783, is filled with one bit of aeronautical excitement after another until you get to November 21st, 1783, when the Montgolfiers send the first human beings uh, aloft in uh, free flight. And uh, just a week or so later, another chemist, uh, Jacques Charles, sends the first two people up in a gas balloon, a balloon that's filled with hydrogen, which is a much better way to build a balloon than, than hot air. And, uh, I mean, the excitement just swept across Europe like, like wildfire. Uh, there was just incredible excitement. And uh, people began immediately wondering what you could do with these things. Um, famously, at uh, the launch of one of the earliest balloons, uh, Benjamin Franklin, who was in 
France, of course, uh, negotiating the Treaty of Paris that would end the French Revolution. Franklin was there at this uh, Paris flight, and he overheard someone in the crowd saying, but, okay, so they've made this balloon thing fly. What good is that? And Franklin says that he leaned out of the window of his carriage and said, sir, of what use is a newborn babe? And people were, were thinking about exactly that, what you could do with these things. And, in fact, Franklin was one of the first people who said, you know, these things could revolutionize military affairs. Um, we could send troops into another country, take them by surprise. Uh, we might be able to drop weapons on them from above. Uh, we could certainly spy on them from above. And uh, so from, from the time of the invention of the balloon, the military applications uh, were something people were uh, were talking about, and in fact, since the balloon was a French invention, shouldn't be too surprising to learn that the French were also the first uh, nation to put balloons to military purpose uh, during the the uh, wars of the French Revolution. Um, the Directory, the government of France, had created uh, an aerostatic corps. And uh, in 1793, 1794, about 10 years after the invention of the balloon, the French were using tethered reconnaissance observation balloons uh, in combat at uh, battles like Charleroi and uh, Fleurus. So um, this whole notion of military balloons, observation balloons, goes back a long way. So uh, this is happening... I guess not parallel with, but but separate from the notion of a powered flight. There's people who've, who've dreamed all along of flying like a bird, uh, but it sounds like these are two completely separate tracks that people are pursuing. There, there are two very different ways to fly. One way, like an airplane, is aerodynamically, in uh, which case you're moving a shaped surface, a wing, through the air in a way that enables the wing to develop enough lift to carry it off the ground. And uh, so that's called aerodynamics because it is dynamic. You're moving through the air. The other way is aerostation, to fly aerostatically, uh, to fly buoyantly as a, as a balloon does. And again, they're based on completely different principles. The principle of the balloon, air, air, um, uh, the, the basic principle of uh, buoyancy, Archimedes' principle, is simplicity itself. As I said, if you have a body that weighs less than the amount of fluid, air in this case, that it displaces, then it's going to float. It's going to go up. Uh, so aerodynamics is oh, much ahead. more complicated than that. Yeah. The, the, the idea that this would occur to people immediately, hey, we can use this to kill people, is, is I suppose, a human part of human nature. Uh, but those initial balloons must have been very... Uh, crude and, and limited. I mean, they would have to be tethered. Um, let's ponder this for a minute and take a short break and come back and, and talk about how military aviation uh, starts to make its impact in the Civil War. We're talking today with Tom Crouch of the Smithsonian's Air and Space Museum, uh, also the author of a book called Lighter Than Air, an illustrated history of balloons and airships. We're discussing military aviation in the Civil War on Civil War Talk Radio. (music) 
don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take World Talk Radio on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. If only I'd known, I would have done things differently. Caring for an elderly loved one is not an easy responsibility. It can be compared to raising children, except children continue to learn new skills and develop as they get older. To help you find the answers that you need, tune into Your Elder Care Coach with host Mike Gamble. If you are currently caring for an elderly loved one or you see the warning signs ahead, we'll help you provide the best care and still maintain your life. Listen every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on World Talk Radio Variety. In the hustle and bustle world we live in, we need to be reminded that in all failures and successes, we are the common denominators. The change needs to come from within. Each week, let Daniel Gutierrez and Osmara Vindel help bring you the tools you need to manage your success. We'll talk with the movers and shakers of business and personal development and see what makes them tick. The only bilingual radio show, right here, right now. Aki Ia Ora airs live every Thursday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. I'm talking today with Tom Crouch from the National Air and Space Museum, where he is senior curator, and we are discussing the topic of military aviation in the Civil War. Uh, years, uh, almost four decades before the Wright brothers flew, uh, but uh, over half a century after the Montgolfier brothers flew the first uh, human-bearing uh, aircraft, uh, lighter-than-aircraft, uh, in France. And uh, Tom, you and I were just discussing the use of balloons in the uh, the Revolutionary and Napoleonic Wars in, in France uh, as military weapons. Uh, how did ballooning come to the United States uh, in the, the 19th century? Actually, the, uh, uh, there were a significant number of Americans in France at the time of the invention of the balloon. Um, people like Benjamin Franklin and the members of the Adams family and the Jay family, and they would all send letters back talking about this wonderful thing that they had seen, the invention of the balloon, and uh, books they would send back in newspapers and so on. And so it's really only a couple of years after the invention of the balloon in France uh, that a fellow up in Bladensburg, Maryland, just outside Washington, uh, builds the first balloon that's big enough to uh, carry a very lightweight person, in fact, a 13-year-old boy, uh, into the air on a, on a tethered flight, not a free flight. It was tied to the ground, but, um, and then as time goes by, the first free flight in America occurred in 1793, 10 years after the invention of the balloon, when a French aeronaut named Jean-Pierre Blanchard flew um, from Philadelphia, in fact, the president, George Washington, not knowing exactly how far Monsieur Blanchard was going to go, actually uh, gave him uh, a passport. Uh, to carry with them to wherever he came down, the natives would be able to see the passport and know that he had the blessing of the new United States government. And then uh, 
early in the 19th century, um, European aeronauts continued to arrive in the U.S. and tour, and then ultimately American aeronauts got into the business. Before the Civil War, aeronautics in the United States was mostly uh, sort of a, a uh, sort of aerial showmanship. Uh, the balloonists would, uh, the only way they could make money was to go from place to place during the summer and uh, give a sense at Fourth of July celebrations and state and county fairs and that kind of thing, sell tickets um, to, so you could go inside a fenced area and watch this guy inflate his balloon and uh, watch him take off then. So uh, it's really not until the years immediately leading up to the Civil War uh, that these sort of amateur peripatetic balloonists who've been flying all over the United States begin to get serious and talk about long-distance flights and that kind of thing, flying the Atlantic. And uh, that's the state of things, in fact, when the Civil War breaks out. Technologically, well, actually, are you a balloon pilot yourself? Have you ever done uh, yeah, I certainly fly balloons, but I'm not a, a licensed pilot. Mm-hmm. Technologically, it's interesting. Um, well, how does one do it? Gas balloon that flew in December 1783 until the time of the Civil War. There was almost no technological development. The first balloons are so simple that the first gas balloon that flew in 1783, essentially the technology was complete in that balloon. And uh, so, you know, there are refinements around the edges, the use of better materials and uh, and that kind of thing. But basically between 1783 and 1861, there's not a lot of technological development in balloons. So, so is, is there any control device at all? I mean, if you take off, you just go where the wind takes you? Just as it is today, you take off and you go where the wind takes you. You know, you can uh, um, gain altitude or lose altitude looking for a current that's blowing in the the direction you want to go, but uh, essentially you're going to go where the wind takes you. And that's why reconnaissance ballooning from the time of the French Revolution to its ultimate extension during World War One, when... Uh, tethered observation balloons were just incredibly important. They've always been tethered. Uh, there were some, uh, there was some use, both on purpose and accidental, of free balloon flights during the Civil War, but, uh, it never went well, free ballooning. They were, they were always tethered behind your own lines, uh, so you're looking from your lines behind the enemy lines. So, well, reconnaissance is obviously of, of, of critical importance in in civil war and any war, but especially before uh, any kind of, of rapid wireless communication. If if you can see far away where the enemy is and get the word to your side quickly, that's going to be a, a giant advantage. Uh, did were balloons used by the U.S. military before the war in Mexico or when Jefferson Davis was Secretary of War or any other time that you know of? No, they, it had been discussed. One of the most famous pre-war antebellum American aeronauts, a fellow named John Wise, from Lancaster, Pennsylvania, had come to the government during the Seminole Wars and essentially said, look, you guys are having such a tough time finding the Native of American encampments down in Florida. Why don't you let me take a balloon down 
I will go up at night with a map maker, and we will look for Indian campfires. We'll, uh, we'll pinpoint the campfires on a map, and then the next day you can go out and see what's happening where those campfires were the night before. Uh, but nothing came of it. Uh, so it, it's really not until the Civil War that uh, a couple of these aeronauts uh, who'd been flying as sort of aerial showmen before the war pop up and say, now I'm going to serve my nation by becoming a reconnaissance balloonist. Was John Wise one of these? He was. He was. Um, at, the, uh, at the time of the first battle of Bull Run, First Manassas, in fact, um, uh, the Army uh, ordered John Wise to take one of his balloons out to the battlefield from uh, Washington. He filled up his balloon with uh, city gas from the Washington Gas Works, tied it down in a wagon, and drove it the 30 miles or so uh, out toward Manassas. They were actually close enough, Wise said, to hear the sound of the guns when the balloon, uh, you, as you can imagine, tied down in a wagon, it was pretty unwieldy, got caught in trees and ripped. And uh, so that was the end of that first attempt. Um, interestingly enough, a few weeks later, an Army officer, a Union officer, and of course the Union had lost the battle, came to Wise and said, well, Professor Wise, the balloons didn't do so well. And Wise looked him right in the eye and said, hey, the balloon part did as well as uh, the Army part. <laughs> so, so no glory for anyone with the first, first attempt. Um, so when did uh, uh, ballooning get off the ground, so to speak, during the Civil War? Well, the first um, active operations actually took place at Fort Monroe, at the tip of the Virginia Peninsula, overlooking Hampton Roads. A, uh, one of these pre-war balloonists, a fellow named John LaMountain, had struck a deal with Benjamin Butler. General Butler, a political general, of course, was commanding Fort Monroe then. And uh, he approved uh, LaMountain's making uh, balloon flights both from the fort and uh, from ships out in Hampton Roads, uh, looking to see what the Confederates were doing. Fort Monroe, of course, was an isolated Union Army post surrounded uh, by the Confederacy. So uh, having somebody like John LaMountain looking out to make sure nobody was approaching the fort and to uh, kind of see what they were doing out there was uh, was quite useful. So uh, that that's from a fixed position, then, I guess. I can see where that would be useful. You're defending a, a, a fort. You're in one place. Uh, but getting a balloon into the field, that must have been harder still. Well, ultimately, um, I mean, there are other balloonists, again, who try to talk the Army into to, uh, letting them create a balloon corps. But the fellow who actually does it, ultimately, who succeeds, and mostly because he's really politically well-connected, was a fellow named Thaddeus Sobiski Constantine Lowe. Uh, Lowe was a New Hampshireman who had become a balloonist before the war and was quite well-known. He'd done a long-distance flight from Cincinnati to uh, the seacoast, uh, just as Fort Sumter uh, was being fired upon. And uh, he was an acquaintance of Joseph Henry, who was the first secretary of the Smithsonian. 
And uh, Henry had been sort of his scientific advisor on these long uh, balloon flights, meteorology and that kind of thing. And uh, so uh, Lowe winds up going to Washington, and Lowe, or, or uh, Joseph Henry, rather, introduces him to the president and uh, to the Secretary of War and that kind of thing, and uh, supports uh, a demonstration flight that Lowe makes on the National Mall on June 18, 1861, right in front, in fact, of where our building now stands, the National Air and Space Museum. And uh, it's during that flight he takes a telegrapher up with him, and he sends the world's first aerial telegram, uh, sends it to the White House. It's a, a, a message to President Lincoln talking about how far he can see from 500 feet in the air and that kind of thing. When it was done, they hauled the balloon down, and with Lowe still in the basket, they walked it down the mall and sort of around the corner to the White House. Lincoln came out and talked to him, invited him to come into the White House, and uh, they talked about the potential for a balloon corps so late in the evening that Lincoln invited him to spend the night, and they continued the discussion the next day. And so right there, Lowe had uh, captured the attention of the most important uh, figure in the American government. And while uh, General Winfield Scott was less than enthusiastic about the balloons, uh, Lowe could always count on support from Lincoln. So Lincoln was really a critical element in the creation of uh, an aerostatic corps, which is what it was called, for uh, the Union Army. Well, Lincoln was always interested in, in technology and, you know, repeating rifles or uh, ironclads or anything else that the people brought to him. In in contrast to people like Scott, you mentioned, or, or Ripley, the, the chief of ordnance, uh, you had these people who were more conservative uh, and perhaps more professional, but, but uh, I guess Lowe made no mistake in going uh, right to the president to get support. Uh, so, so then, do we see a fleet of balloons? I mean, if we saw a massive fleet of balloons, everyone listening to the show would already know about it. So, let me phrase it differently: Why, why don't we see a, a huge fleet of balloons over the Union Army immediately? Well, I mean, there are seven balloons ultimately. Uh, really, that, that, that many fleet. And um, uh, after some initial flights in from the uh, the area around Washington. And, of course, in the aftermath of First Bull Run, they're afraid of a Confederate advance on Washington. So Lowe goes out to this outer ring of forts and flies just to make sure the Confederates, um, in fact, are not coming, and uh, does a little artillery spotting and uh, for the first time and uh, that kind of thing. And uh, finally, uh, the Union Army says, uh, okay, we like this idea. They give him a parcel of money, and he goes to Philadelphia and, again, uh, builds six balloons. He, the seventh one is the one he was already flying, of various sizes and so on, and uh, hires aeronauts, some of his old friends who had been uh, um, itinerant balloonists before the war, and uh, he's in business. The, the balloons operate, for the most part, in the eastern theater of war, but um, along the, the uh, southern coast as well on occasion, and uh, as far west as the Riverine campaigns in the west, 
uh, one of Lowe's balloonists, John Steiner, uh, also does some critically important um, artillery spotting and directing uh, during uh, the attack on Island Number 10. And, uh, you know, the Union batteries can't see the Confederate target they're aiming at, but Steiner, up in the air, can see exactly where the enemy is and can can uh, walk the Union gunners right onto the target. So, um, yeah, the, there, there were seven balloons, all told, and they were used uh, in a variety of places. Do you, was there anti-aircraft fire? Did the Confederates try to shoot them down? You bet. Uh, I, I uh, imagine that'd be the reaction I'd have. Uh, I, I mean, sometimes the Union tried to shoot them down. <laughs> <laughs> Lowe's original balloon, uh, early on in the war, when he was operating from the Washington area, as uh, as I said, uh, all of his flights really were tethered flights. From the beginning, from 1793 to World War One. Tethering these balloons was the only thing that made any sense at all. But on rare occasions, Lowe, uh, on at least one occasion, tried a free flight, figuring that if he was blown over Confederate lines, he could find a breeze blowing him back. Well, it turned out that the Union Army troops over which he was flying thought he was Confederate and opened fire on him. And ultimately, he blown behind Confederate lines, hides in the woods, and his wife actually has to sneak into uh, uh, Arlington, the wagon, to uh, to kind of rescue him in the balloon before the Confederates uh, catch him. So, But no, normally when the balloons were in operation during the Peninsula Campaign at Fredericksburg, Chancellorsville, the other battles where uh, where they operated, the Confederates were always trying to shoot them down, both with artillery and uh, shoulder arms. But what the balloonists discovered was that if they could zip up pretty quickly through 300 feet, if they could get up to 500 feet and above, they were okay. They were out of rifle range then, and the Confederates couldn't elevate their field guns uh, high enough to shoot at them. So uh, throughout the course of the war, uh, thousands of flights, um, no balloon was ever ever uh, destroyed as a result of enemy fire. So they they were used fairly extensively. Said Fredericksburg at Chancellorsville. I'm just thinking out loud. Particularly on the peninsula. By, by the last year of the war, when you're fighting in the wilderness, uh, maybe there's not much to see. Uh, did Grant continue to use balloons through the end of the war, or did they stop doing that at some point? The Aeronautic Corps sort of collapsed in 1863 um, for a whole raft of reasons. Um, Lowe and his balloonists, the, the Army never took them into the command structure. Uh, they were always contractors. Lowe always wanted uh, himself and his balloonists to be officers so that they could kind of deal with the military folks on an even keel. Uh, but the Army would never do that. So there was always that problem. How do you fit these guys into the command structure of the Army? Uh, while commanders were enthusiastic about the balloons, some of them wildly enthusiastic, um, they also had to admit that communication was a problem. Uh, you know, if you're up in the balloon, you sure, you can with flags or dropping notes or a telegram, you can... 
talk to the folks on the ground and tell them what you see, but getting that information from where you are to the guy at the point of the spear, the commander out here that's actually in contact with the enemy, was a real problem. So um, that that was a difficulty. Um, money uh, was, was a was a problem. Logistics was a problem. The balloons were expensive and uh, they were hard to move because uh, it's not just the balloon. Um, you know, if you're inflating a balloon in Washington or in Richmond for the Confederate balloons, uh, you can use city gas, no problem. But when you're out in the field, like the Union at Gaines Mill or down on the peninsula, you know, there are no gas works available, so you have to generate your own hydrogen to fill the balloon. And low designed big, huge inflation wagons that were actually constructed for him at the Navy Yard here in Washington. And uh, what you would do was load... Uh, literally a, a ton of iron filings and uh, dilute sulfuric acid into these inflation wagons. And, of course, the chemical reaction bubbles off hydrogen, uh, which carries to the balloon through some washers to cool the gas and deacidify it so you don't burn holes in the balloon. So uh, when you're moving, you, you have this whole train of balloon and, and equipment and inflation wagons you need at least a company of guys to operate the balloon. So keeping up with the Army, for example, when they were moving um, north after Chancellorsville toward ultimately toward Gettysburg, uh, they had a real tough time keeping up. Mm-hmm. And uh, so for a whole raft of reasons, um, the Balloon Corps went out of business in, in uh, 1863. Ultimately, uh, Lowe had sort of a knockdown drag out with uh, uh, his uh, uh, sort of commanding officer in uh, the topographical engineers. And, and uh, once Lowe had gotten mad and walked away, the, the whole thing kind of, uh, kind of slowed down, collapsed ultimately. It's an ingenious technology then to, to get those flying at all, but, but perhaps immature, uh, not fully ready yet, but, but would be soon. We're going to take another short break. I want to ask you about uh, Confederate ballooning, uh, among other things. Uh, we're talking today with Tom Crouch. He's a senior curator of the Division of Aeronautics at the National Air and Space Museum. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to listen and talk. Tune in to Green with Envy every week for the most up-to-date information about living a green, fulfilling life. With a mix of serious inquiry and engaging humor, host Peter Terween and his guest experts uncover topical issues and refreshing stories that will keep you informed and inspired. We'll want to hear from you during the live program as well. Green with Envy is broadcast live every Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on World Talk Radio Variety. 
mind, brain, and body on Voice America Health and Wellness is delighted to finally have the opportunity to fulfill the requests of our many guests and listeners to extend the mind, brain, and body experience to a second hour. Tune in for The Lyceum, Critiques of Ancient and Modern Understanding with Dr. Michael Kell. The purpose of this show is to explore and expand upon mankind's continual efforts to explain why we exist. Join us each week as we continue our fireside chats with some of the most remarkable thinkers living today. The Lyceum airs Fridays at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific on World Talk Radio Variety. You're listening to the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking with Tom Crouch of the Smithsonian's National Air and Space Museum. And we've been talking about Civil War military aviation, the use of balloons of lighter-than-air aircraft during the war, uh, primarily by the Union. We've talked about Thaddeus Lowe and his uh, core of balloons, uh, as many as seven uh, aircraft that were used to help Union forces on the peninsula and elsewhere uh, throughout the war, at least through the first several years of the war. Uh, Tom, what about uh, the Confederates? Uh, we're, obviously, they've got the blockade against them. They've got all kinds of reasons why they can't do everything a Union can, but uh, did they attempt to fly? Sure. Before the war, there had been uh, Southern balloonists as well, itinerant balloonists who toured the South. And uh, once the war began, some of them, like their Union counterparts, wanted to uh, support uh, Confederate forces. The um, earliest Confederate balloon was, um, uh, in, in the wake of, of Manassas, was was kind of a primitive thing. It was a hot air balloon that didn't work all that well. But ultimately, uh, the Southerners did have... Uh, Gas balloons. The the most famous one, which was in service during the Peninsula Campaign, was uh, a balloon called the Gazelle. Uh, General Longstreet, who was very fond of it uh, and talked about it in his memoirs, referred to it as the silk dress balloon. He misunderstood. He actually thought that women in the Deep South had contributed their silk dresses, which were cut up to make the balloon. And that, that, in fact, was not the case. What happened was that they used uh, bolts of imported dress silk, silk that hadn't been cut up into dresses yet, and uh, they built the gazelle out of uh, bolts of, of uh, dress silk. So it was quite colorful and uh, did good service. Um, E.P. Alexander, uh, the famous young uh, Confederate artillerist and, and a signal officer and so on and so forth, uh, was really very fond of the balloon. Um, like the Union, uh, the Confederates sometimes uh, operated their, their balloons from uh, boats on the river uh, to make them easier to move around and so on. And during the Peninsula Campaign, uh, the Gazelle was captured by the Union Army, and so the, the best-known Confederate balloon went... Uh, went out of service uh, that way. Just the, the Confederates um, uh, had their innings, too. During the peninsula, They, uh, uh, when the Confederates were advancing during the Battle of Gaines Mill, 
uh, Lowe had to get away from the balloon camp where he was real quickly. And as I had said, uh, the, the balloon camp was kind of cumbersome to move because you've got these big, heavy inflation wagons and so on. So he gets out with his guys and with the balloons, but they have to abandon their inflation wagons. And uh, the Confederates capture them and uh, haul one of them in triumph through the, the streets of Richmond. So there are, are uh, Richmond newspaper articles about, you know, having captured this uh, this uh, Yankee technological miracle. The, the Confederates were really nervous in the city, in Richmond, about the balloons during the Peninsula Campaign because um, when Lowe and his aeronauts were flying uh, up the peninsula, around Gaines Mill, for example, uh, in Richmond, they could see the balloons. You know, the balloons could see into the city, but the people in the city could see the balloons as well, and it was uh, made them right nervous. Yeah, it was the, the physical sign of the federal government getting closer to them. Exactly. The, I, I'm curious, I wonder if, do you suppose anyone has ever tried to, uh, you know, any reenactors have tried to build a gazelle of multicolored silk and, and fly it today? Uh, not that one, any? but um, as we approach the uh, 150th anniversary of the Peninsula Campaign, when the balloons saw their first serious combat, and in some ways the Peninsula Campaign was the peak of uh, the history of the Aeronautic Corps, the Balloon Corps, uh, about... Um, uh, recreating the Intrepid, which was perhaps the best known of Lowe's balloons. Doing it, in fact, as a gas balloon and uh, having it down on the peninsula. Whether whether that'll actually happen or not, we don't know, but uh, it sure would be neat if uh, the funding comes together. Uh, the talks about doing it are serious and seriously underway, so... Um, if the folks in Richmond once again see a balloon uh, next spring, it, that's what it'll be. Well, that would be very, very interesting to see, to have an, act, an actual Civil War-style balloon. Of course, uh, I mean, balloons with hydrogen be extraordinarily dangerous. I assume they wouldn't uh, use hydrogen for the modern version. Uh, no, they'd use helium. Although, um, I mean, we still fly balloons with, uh, with hydrogen. Uh, gas balloons are terribly expensive to inflate in this country with helium. You know, you'll pay six to $10,000 for a single inflation uh, really? for a gas balloon that you're going to race. And hydrogen is much cheaper. So a lot of European balloonists, even today, uh, still fly with hydrogen. When you, when you go to the gas balloon races at Albuquerque every year, you'll see most of the balloons over here getting filled up with helium tanks. But over there, you know, there'll be a group of four or five or six mostly European balloonists who are inflating over there all by themselves with hydrogen. With everybody keeping a good distance away, I imagine. <laughs> At least keeping the smokers away. That's right. So did was this a dead end, or, or did military ballooning you know, gain something from the Civil War? No, it was incredibly important. Interestingly enough, not so much in the United States. Um, after the Civil War, there was not a lot of enthusiasm in this country uh, for restarting the balloon program. 
Uh, and the, the balloon that was used during the Spanish-American War was sort of an embarrassment. So it's really not until the early years of the 20th century when uh, the government gets back into the aeronautical business, the Army. It was in Europe, in fact. There were, of course, operating with the Union Army, um, attaches from various European governments, including Count von Zeppelin, the young Count von Zeppelin from uh, the state of Württemberg, but uh, French and British representatives who were just fascinated by the balloons and who saw the real potential for them. And they carried the message back to Europe. And so beginning in the 1870s and uh, going through the rest of the century, the major European governments, France, Germany, Britain, uh, Russia, so on and so forth, they all have balloon cores that just play a really important role. Uh, in the Franco-Prussian War, both the Germans and the French in 1870-71 make big use of the balloons. And in uh, the colonial campaigns from the French in North Africa uh, to the British in South Africa and during the Boer War, um, have important military balloon units operating with the Army. And all of them, interestingly enough, have um, um, depots in the home countries where they build balloons and, and equipment and train balloonists and so on. And, for example, in Britain, the balloon factory, as it was called, was headquartered at Farnborough. And when the airplane comes along very early in the 20th century, since you've got these aeronautical guys already there, I mean, that's where the airplane guys get sent. Same thing in uh, in France. It's at uh, Chalimoudon and places where the French uh, were building military balloons and training military balloonists that uh, powered flight really takes root first. So, And, of course, during the First World War, um, observation balloons, they aren't round like Civil War balloons anymore. They're sausage-shaped, tethered kite balloons, they were called, play an incredibly important role uh, in the First World War. I mean, just um, just an incredibly important way to watch what's happening on the other side of the trenches since um, trench warfare was in place and the other guy is kind of fixed to the ground the ability to get up above and see what's happening behind his lines and when he may be preparing for an attack was just incredibly important. So uh, observation balloons remain uh, real important through the end of the First World War. Uh, with, with a static military situation, you can see how that would that would be. Uh, of course, both sides then used uh, fixed-wing aircraft to try to shoot down the other side's balloons. They did, uh, indeed. Was there any aerodynamic experimentation going on during our Civil War? Oh, there was, indeed. I, it's something that's really interested me of late. There were um, proposals for fixed-wing, heavier-than-aircraft on both sides of the lines, especially as the war drags on. If you look at the Confederacy at the time of Petersburg, for example, uh, when the Union Army uh, has Lee's army uh, surrounded in Petersburg, um, you have one guy, for example, a phone in Richard Davidson, who's circulating through the Confederate camps, uh, giving talks about uh, this flying machine that he's planning, 
that he's sure will enable them to leap over the Yankee lines and, and, and turn this whole thing around. He's actually passing the hat among uh, Confederate infantry units, raising money to, to build this thing of his. And uh, there are two or three other Confederates who, who um, get some real attention. And same thing on the other side of the lines. Um, the chief engineer of the Army of the James, uh, Edward Sorrell, who's a first-rate professional engineer on the Union side, uh, was involved in building the Hoosac Tunnel and uh, uh, no slouch, a railroad engineer and so on. He is so serious about his plan for a helicopter-like thing, again, at the time of Petersburg, that uh, he actually talks uh, Benjamin Butler, and uh, Grant ultimately becomes involved as well into letting him leave the field, go to New York, raise money, and uh, when the war ends, he's actually uh, conducting aerodynamic tests of rotor blades for this helicopter of his, and he's building the steam engine and the fuselage. He's actually cutting metal and building this thing. You really, know, really think it's really going to work. None of them yeah. are ever going to fly, but it's an important indication of, um, you know, the importance of that old dream of, of wing flight. Well, the, uh, the dream will eventually come to, to fruition. Uh, unfortunately, not on our show today, as we've reached the end of our hour, as happens too soon. Uh, uh, every time we have one of these conversations uh, on Civil War Talk Radio, uh, we've been talking today with Tom D. Crouch. Uh, he's the author of Lighter Than Air, an illustrated history of balloons and airships. He's also the senior curator of the Division of Aeronautics at the Smithsonian's National Air and Space Museum, and he's been sharing with us the uh, not very well-known story of aviation, military aviation during the Civil War. Tom, it's been a real pleasure talking with you today. Well, pleasure for me, too. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. (laughs) 